morning, everyone. Uh, like Jason said, the lesson's on leadership this morning in a area of scripture that uh, I don't know if I've ever heard First Chronicles taught on ever, period, uh, much less this section of First Chronicles. Uh, but it's one of those kind of hidden gems where when you realize what's going on, there are some very amazing lessons hidden in the text here. It's a section of First Chronicles that is not found in First Samuel. So if you're if you're not aware, First uh, Samuel and Second Samuel are parallel to First Chronicles. So First Chronicles is a chronicle account of the life of David. Second uh, Chronicles chronicles starts with Solomon and then goes to the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, but First Chronicles is a summary of David's entire life, really starting with uh, the fall of Saul in battle in First Chronicles 10 and 11. Uh, the first nine chapters are also chronicles of genealogies going back to, to Adam, to David. Um, but the end of the book is also uh, lists and names. And so it can be easy to kind of trudge through it and really not realize the, the importance of what you're reading. So I'll try to point that out, and then we'll make some applications as well. But with this lesson on leadership, uh, I kind of want to define what I'm talking about. So I've given lessons in the past couple of years on looking forward to the long-term goal of appointing elders and deacons one day. So that's something that the church here needs. We need elders and deacons. And we've talked about in the past how that's something that we work towards right now. You know, we don't just wait for that to happen. We don't just hope for that to happen one day. We, we work towards it. We pray very diligently about that and just trust that God's able to work out the things that to us maybe seem impossible. Um, but God wants his church to have elders and deacons. But that's, that's not what I'm talking about. Um, I'm also not necessarily talking about what happens at assemblies with the men leading up front. Uh, I'll reference that. That will be a point in the lesson. Um, but there's a quote from someone important in history in the past. Some of you may recognize the quote when I say this. Leadership is influence and influence alone. And so that's a big part of this is really what we're talking about is, is influence. And how did David inspire through his influence? And really, God. How did God work through David's influence to inspire the leadership we're about to read about? But also initiative. Influence and initiative. That leadership is just taking initiative. And a man, obviously, can and should take initiative. A woman can and should take initiative. Both men and women can be a powerful tool that God can use to influence others in very powerful ways, in diverse ways, right? So I don't want to just put this lesson in just one specific box. Um, I just want you to try to realize that this lesson is meant to be taken very personally. And there's things that I hope everybody will be able to take away and be convicted and encouraged by with this lesson. So how David inspired leadership in Israel and why this last section of Chronicles is important. Um, first of all, this is near the end of David's life. Uh, it kind of hints at this in chapter 23, verse 27, if you'll turn there. Um, and we're going to be sticking in the section of Chronicles. So if you haven't found it, it's after 2 Kings. So it goes First and Second Samuel, First and 2 Kings, First Chronicles, kind of rewinds, gets back to the life of David. Um, and the Chronicles is, like I hinted at, it, it is distinct from the other record of David's life and has a different focus. All of these sections are completely unique to First Chronicles. So this, this has no parallel whatsoever, um, which makes it very important. 
But 23-27, it says, By the last words of David, the sons of Levi were numbered from 20 years old and upward. Kind of giving you a time frame for this list. Chapter 26, verse 31 says something similar. The idea is, chapter 23 through 27, really through the end of the book, is basically the last year of David's life. And this is summarizing, kind of encapsulating the results of David's life. And what I've got here on the board as the top one on the board, God created a whole new era of leadership through the life of David. And that's really important to keep in mind contextually with things that have happened really closely to this time frame. So think about the time frame of the judges. Did Israel have good leadership in the period of the judges? Uh, no, Paul, they didn't. <laughs> it was it was a bad time frame of leadership. It, their nation was broken, and they had horrible leadership at the time of the judges. And that was hundreds of years. Samuel was a good leader. But even in the time of Samuel, Israel did not have good leadership. And then they asked for a king like the other nations around them. Was Saul a good leader? King Saul? No, Saul was not a good leader. Uh, Israel had a long legacy of no leadership, broken leadership, or just outright bad leadership in the case of King Saul. Uh, this is going to be chapter after chapter. We're not going to read this in detail, and we're going to summarize of hundreds of people who voluntarily became leaders in Israel at the culmination of David's life. This dramatically changed Israel from the time of David in the few years that he was fleeing from Saul and ruling as king there was a dramatic shift, not just in the nature of the nation, the leadership of the nation. This is going to look like a lot, but I'm going to summarize these things as we go through and go from top to bottom, chapter by chapter. So 23, I'm really not going to read anything in 23, but this all starts with the Levitical leadership. Really, some of the most important leaders in Israel were meant to be the Levites and the priests. The Levites and the priests. Not all priests, or not all Levites were priests, but all priests were Levites, right? So Aaron was from the tribe of Levi. Only the descendants of Aaron were priests. Everyone else from the families of Levi, they were Levites. They were meant to be leaders. There's thousands of Levites at this time. So I made a note in verse 3, the 30-year-old and upward number of 38,000. That's over four times as many Levites that are numbered in that specific census compared to the book of Numbers, which is very amazing. So you've got the overview of the Levitical families in chapter 23 and the revision of their duties slightly and David clarifying in verse 25 that you know they don't need to carry the Ark of the Covenant anymore or the tabernacle tapestries because now the place of God is going to be in one location as they prepare to build the temple. Chapter 24, verses 1 through 19. There are so many priests now. It started with Aaron. Adab and Abihu died, then you have Eleazar and Ithamar, so three original priests. 7 through 19, the priests are organized into 24 separate divisions. This lasts, by the way, until the time of Jesus. Uh, John the Baptist's father was from the division of Abijah, that's verse 10. So these 24 divisions continued on all the way to the time of John the Baptist, the division of Abijah, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, was from that division. It just gives you an impression there is a great multiplication of the priests, but not just the priests, but their willingness to lead, take responsibility. 
Uh, chapter 25, you get to a new division of Levites. Uh, you have Asaph, Jaduthan, and Heman, who are the heads of the musicians who would have been in the temple. Uh, they would have, in verse uh, 25, kind of in the middle, they were to prophesy with lyres, harps, and cymbals. End of verse 2, who prophesied under the direction of the king. End of verse 3, who prophesied in giving thanks and praising. And then verse 5, all these were the sons of Heman, the king's seer, meaning prophet, to exalt him according to the words of God. So this is a whole new office started in the time of David. Before David, uh, there were not like organized, appointed singers and musicians for the tabernacle. This is something that began under the rule of David, a whole new office of leadership. And again, in verse 8, they cast lots and 24 divisions of the families and the leaders of the musicians. So this would have been taken very seriously and appointed um, offices of leadership. Chapter 26, 1 through 28, you have the people who are going to be the gatekeepers of the temple. And you notice in verse 6, for they were valiant men or mighty men of valor at the end of verse 6. End of verse 7, they were valiant men. So these weren't just like, you know, anybody was going to be a gatekeeper. These were important people. These were people who were valiant, who would be warriors, and they would have been responsible for keeping the gates of the temple. Then you get into 29 through 32. Well, I skipped the treasurers, so that starts in verse um, 20 through 28. Uh, you have the people who would have been responsible for the treasures of the house of the Lord. You imagine that would have been an enormous trust and responsibility they were given. But they are also appointed into that office. And then 29 through 32, you have Levites who would have just been officers and judges. That gets back to Deuteronomy. God intended for the Levites to be people who helped make decisions for the nation. You could go to a Levite and bring a difficult case to them or a question about the law. So there would have been various judges, thousands of judges. Notice verse 30. Just for this Hebronite family, 1,700 capable men. Verse 32, uh, 2,700 in number, heads of their father's household. David made them overseers, the Reubenites, Gadites, half-tribe Manassites, concerning the affairs of God and the king. So again, thousands of leaders who are trustworthy, and I think every impression is these are people volunteering. They're not having to be forced into this work, but they are ready to lead as a result of David's influence. Chapter 27, you have officers for each month of the year. Very interesting. Through 1, one through 15. Month by month, there would be a new officer in charge of 24,000 people per month. They would have been in charge of uh, the king's business and the land. And then verse 16, verse 16 then through 24, you have other officers who would have been over each tribe of Israel, one leader per tribe of Israel. And then verse 25 through 31, I actually want to read this to the end. This is one of the more unusual things, so 25. This is 27, verse 25. Now Asmaveth, the son of Adiel, had charge of the king's storehouses, and Jonathan, the son of Uzziah, had charge of the storehouses in the country, in the cities, in the villages, and in the towers. Ezri, the son of Chelub, had charge of the agricultural workers who tilled the soil. Shemai, the Ramathite, had charge of the vineyards, and Zabdi, the the Shifmite had charge of the produce of the vineyard stored in the wine cellars. Baal Hanan, the Gedarite, had charge of the olive and sycamore trees in, in Shephelah. And Joash had charge of the stores of oil. Chitrai, the Sharonite, had charge of the cattle which were grazing in Sharon. And Shaphat, the son of Adlai, had charge of the cattle of the valleys. Abil, the Ishmaelite, had charge of the camels. And Jadea, the Maronathite, Marin- the had charge of the donkeys. 
Jaziz the Hagrites had charge of the flocks. All these were overseers of the property which belonged to King David. So I worded this in the board as these are overseers of land and livestock. You know, you may read this and think like, why am I reading this? You know, people in charge of donkeys and olive trees. Just think about this, though. Again, thinking about the, the breakdown of leadership in Israel's history. In this time frame, the fact that they had guys who would take care of olive trees and be appointed by name, were they lacking any trustworthy leaders in this time frame? Were they lacking any men who they could find to assign to some menial task and prove trustworthy for that responsibility? There was such an abundance of leadership in David's time, people were even trustworthy to just work the land, be in charge of animals, be in charge of vineyards and trees. It just emphasizes the degree of leadership in Israel, the kind of accountability that would create within the nation, and how the nation was even embracing accountability in David's time. Verse 32, also Jonathan, David's uncle, was a counselor, man of understanding and a scribe. And Jahael, the son of Hakmoni, tutored the king's sons. Ahithophel, who ended up betraying David, was counselor to the king. And Hushai the archite was the king's friend. Jehoiada, the son of Benaiah, and Abiathar succeeded Ahithophel. And Joab was commander of the king's army. A new era of leadership. What's the point? God inspired through David. Again, this just shows the, the power of David's influence. There were tons, a multitude of people ready to serve, ready to lead. And ultimately, it shouldn't be any different for us. You know, there's a sense where we should learn from David's example. But there's also a sense where Jesus is our David, right? Leadership is the inevitable result of true loyalty to the Lord. Think about Jesus working with his disciples. Was Jesus training his disciples to be passive observers in the kingdom work? To have any lack of zeal to feel needs wherever they would be? No, Jesus in his ministry, before they knew what the kingdom fully represented, he sent them out in pairs without him to go and preach the kingdom to people and stay in people's houses. Jesus trained his disciples to lead. People who were close to Jesus were leaders. Men and women, each in their own ways, fitting within the gender roles assigned by God's word, but still being an influence, taking initiative. It's the product of the influence of the Lord. If you were close to David, you became a leader. If you were close to Jesus, you became a leader. When we hold ourselves back, this helps us understand we hold others back as well. Saul being a bad leader was not just destroying himself in his pride. He destroyed the potential of others in the nation. In the time of the judges, everybody who could lead, who chose not to lead, who excused themselves from doing what they should have done, they were not just destroying themselves, they were destroying the potential of others. There's just something God has built within us where we inspire others around us, where we influence others around us, where we have an impact on others around us. God has not called us to be passive observers. Leadership is not something that's always visible. It's not something, again, that is always at an assembly in front of others. But again, leadership is the inevitable result of being close to the Lord. It was the inevitable result of being influenced by the So what I want to do for the rest of the lesson is really simple. 
Um, I just want to kind of reflect, and I'm going to depend on your knowledge of King David's life. Um, I'm going to reflect on qualities of David's influence that I think would have heavily contributed to how God was able to do this in David's time. And I'm going to try to focus on qualities that I haven't focused on before in other lessons. Um, I had like lists through this week where I was writing down different qualities. And there's, there's so many things to talk about with David's influence, but I've, I've really tried to narrow it down to a digestible amount and things that I haven't just hit on before um, in recent lessons. The first thing I think is really obvious, but I think it's really important to reinforce because everything that I'm going to point out is an extension of this first point. Look at 28, chapter 28, First Chronicles, verse 8 again. Um, I am going to look at some references here and some of the things David says to the leaders. So from the scripture reading, just remember in chapter 28, verse 1, David calls the leaders. So like everybody who is enumerated, basically 28.1 says David gathered all of them. They were all here. They were all hearing this. And David will tell them what he has spent his life doing himself. And there's one thing. After telling them what this is all about, the higher purpose of all of this, he's got one thing to say to the leaders. So now, in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord, and in the hearing of our God, observe and seek after all the commandments of the Lord your God, so that you may possess the good land and bequeath it to your sons after you forever. That's it. After that, he talks to Solomon. Pretty much says the same thing. God empowered David's influence through David's devotion to his word and prayer. Leadership, and I mean spiritual godly leadership, isn't like leadership in business institutions or worldly like self-help books written about leadership. There might be some like nuggets of wisdom. But if we want to learn real leadership as it's defined by God, we got to look in the Bible. Spiritual leadership is not like worldly leadership. If we want worldly leadership, we've got Saul, King Saul, as an example. He was a man like the other nations around him. That's worldly leadership. Worldly leadership in God's house will fail. Spiritual leadership in God's house will flourish and succeed. David was a spiritual leader first and foremost. How did that happen? He had a devotion to the word of God. You know, David made applications from God's law no one else had ever made before. David thought about God in ways that no one else did. Think about when he defeated Goliath. Nobody thought about God the way that David did. No one stepped up the way that David did. It's because nobody else had the devotion or treatment of God's word that David had. And that was the seed of David's influence. This was a man devoted to God's word. In his prayer life, you know, David wrote more psalms than anybody else. He wrote about half of the Psalms in the book of Psalms. I would describe David's prayer life as intense. You know, we have examples of prayer, instructions to pray. You know, David didn't have very much of that. But you know, all of the Bible's greatest leaders had diligent prayer lives, and they were deeply, intimately connected to the Word of God. Every great leader you read about in the Bible, this is fundamentally what's true about them. Whether we're talking about Moses, Joshua, David, we're talking about the prophets like Isaiah that we're studying on Wednesdays, we're talking about Jesus. And we're talking about how did Jesus influence the world? Jesus was devoted to the word of God like nobody else was. He made applications from God's word that no one else was willing to make or knew to make. 
And Jesus' prayer life was intense. So my first question, and I mean this really personal, what kind of applications do you make from God's Word? You know, it is only things you hear taught to you. You know, I'm not sure how many sermons David heard in his lifetime. He had to dig deep himself, and his applications had to come from self-discovery. It's good to apply lessons. I hope that this lesson gets applied. But some of the most meaningful lessons that can be applied aren't things that are told to us from the pulpit, but things we read with our own eyes from the Bible. David made self-discovered, meaningful, personal applications from God's Word. There's going to be things in the Bible that we need to do that are just not going to get talked about in Bible class or in sermons on Sundays very regularly, but they are meaningful, needed applications. How are you praying? You know, I really appreciated both Paul Kelsey and Paul Johnson and their prayers. Paul Kelsey prayed for tremendous growth of our faith. Paul Johnson prayed that we could grow in our faith. You know, I know someone who after they repented, they spent time praying something diligently. They repeated it and they meant it. They prayed that God would help them do what glorified him the most. And they prayed that often. And I watched that person be transformed and changed and become heavily involved in God's work. How are you praying? You know, David didn't just pray routine prayers. He didn't just ask generally for help if something so happened to come along that was troubling him. David's prayers were prayers for development. Think about Jesus in John 17. You know, Jesus in John 17 prayed for the development of his people and the relationship with God. Jesus was concerned with leadership and development. We need to change the way we're praying. You know, and we don't just need to pray passively like, God, help me grow. David, again, this was intensive. If we understand leadership, spiritual leadership, this should be something that we pray for intensively, both for personal development, me first, and then praying for the development of others as well. God empowered David's influence through David's devotion to his word and to prayer. Everything else we're going to study is just an extension of that. So although I may not mention that, please remember that. That's the foundation. All right. David started small and was faithful in small things first. Think about before David killed Goliath. There's something kind of obscure that's really amazing in 1 Samuel 17. You don't need to turn there. Um, but in 1 Samuel 17, you know, Saul, when David's brought to him, Saul's like, you can't go up against Goliath. You're just a, just a boy, just a youth. And David tells a story. He says, well, there once was a time when a lion and a bear had taken sheep from my flock. And I went and I grabbed the lion by its mane and clubbed it on its head, and God delivered me from the lion and from the bear. This man would be no different than that lion and the bear. Where did David learn as a young boy to think, you know, God's going to help me defeat this lion because this lion took one of my sheep. And imagine this boy clubbing this lion on the head and not thinking, wow, this was, an, I'm powerful, but thinking, God's amazing. God delivered me. God did this for me. David started small. He started with getting his own heart in its right position. And after defeating Goliath, although that was a bigger moment, David didn't become arrogant. He continued to humble himself, watch his attitude. He kept himself, he kept himself small in his own eyes. There are times where he would confront Saul and say, why are you looking for me like a dead dog or a single flea? 
The fact that David would talk of himself that way after defeating Goliath and becoming famous, being a leader in Israel and defeating the Canaanites is incredible. David started small and was faithful in small things. That meant things were messy a lot of times. When David was fleeing from Saul, that was a very messy time period. It meant things required a great deal of patience. But again, David learned the value of the small things. Luke 16.10, I think in terms of development, this might be one of the most important things ever taught in the Bible. Jesus said, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. There's wisdom in filtering down overwhelming things or intimidating things, realizing how important those things are and how needed they are to take personally, and filtering them down to an approachable size. You know, tasks that seem enormous, filtering it down to an approachable size and stepping into it. You know, wisdom is in the little things. You want to develop as a leader? Don't start big, start small. Focus on one thing at a time. Focus on some small area of your faith where you can say, you know what, I can't do a hundred things, but I can certainly develop in this one thing. Ask people to pray for you in that one thing. Keep yourself accountable to that one thing. Don't give up on that one small, insignificant thing behind the scenes. Start small. Here's a practical way to think about this. You know, and this is an assembly-related thing, but a sermon. You know, giving a sermon can be a very intimidating thing. Uh, not everybody in here is very experienced with teaching sermons. But, you know, a sermon doesn't have to be 40 minutes. A sermon doesn't have to be 30 minutes. A sermon doesn't have to be 20 minutes. A sermon doesn't even have to be 10 minutes. You know, a sermon can be maybe a little bit messy. But the important thing is read God's Word. Meditate on it. Teach it accurately. Teach it plainly. Teach it simply. You know, sometimes a person stepping up for the first time, reading God's word and just making really clear, straightforward points is more impactful than someone who's been preaching for ages, making really deep connections and applications. God uses little small steps to take us further than we could possibly imagine. You know, if you haven't preached a sermon, study one section of scripture for a long time. Make one or two helpful uh, applications from that passage. If that's 10 minutes of teaching, praise God. Start there. There's wisdom in the little, and there's wisdom in filtering a task down to a reasonable, not intimidating size and stepping into it. All right. David constantly chose to be strong and courageous. Look down at verse 20. Well, first look at verse 10. This is something he tells Solomon multiple times here. So verse 10, consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be courageous and act. And then look at verse 20. Then David said to his son Solomon, be strong and courageous and act. Do not fear nor be dismayed, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. You know, something interesting, you know the last time that was said to anyone was Joshua. Was Solomon going to be fighting any battles? No, he was a man of peace. So him being strong and courageous is not going to be like David fighting armies. So this is going to be something more task-oriented than it is battle-oriented. Suffice it to say, though, less about Solomon. David can say that to Solomon like he told the nation to seek the Lord in his word and then prosper because David's life has been lived by that principle. David didn't just choose to be strong and courageous sometimes. 
It wasn't like, well, when facing Goliath, he's strong and courageous, and then the switch turns off out of battle, and then another battle happens, turn the switch on again. No. David constantly chose to be strong and courageous in his attitude and his actions. David wrote at the end of Psalm 27 something very interesting. He says, wait on the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait on the Lord. In Psalm 27, he isn't saying, take courage, go fight a battle. He's saying, be strong and take courage. Wait on the Lord. You know, this is an attitude thing. It's a faith thing. So David pushed this idea of being strong and courageous. I think, I can fairly say, he had taken it to a point it had never been taken before. You know, we can be strong and courageous through the week in ways that nobody else can see. We need to be strong and courageous, not as something we do in the bigger moments, but like the last point, even in the smaller moments. And think about this. Saul had courage sometimes. But did David expose that Saul actually was deeply fearful? Saul did not have an attitude of being strong and courageous. You could fight some battles, you could show some courage, but ultimately, because that wasn't rooted in his devotion to God, it failed. Scribes and Pharisees. I'm sure for most of the time that Jesus wasn't around, scribes and Pharisees looked like very bold, very brave individual individuals. Jesus mentioned in Matthew 23, they travel land and sea to make one convert. That seems very bold, very courageous. Well, when they were around Jesus, did Jesus expose a very deep-seated fear that hindered their ability to really be an influence for good, for godliness? Here's what I'm trying to say. As we serve the Lord intimately, as we begin to take some initiative with God's word, as we start devoting ourselves to God's word like we should, when we start praying for development like we should, fears we struggle with, very real fears, are going to be pulled to the surface, and that's inevitable. We need to be told to be strong and courageous because we struggle with fear. Again, it's easy to become intimidated and overwhelmed by tasks, even as Solomon would struggle with. It's easy to be worried about what other people are going to think. It's easy to worry about if I confess a sin I'm struggling with, losing respect from people around me. You know, it's easy to, again, be fearful in all sorts of different ways that go beyond just these bigger moments and bigger victories. It's easy to get frustrated when things are not ideal. It's easy to get frustrated when people disagree with you. It's easy to become impatient when things happen too slowly. It's easy to get frustrated with how long it may take to appoint elders in a local church. We need to be strong and courageous. No matter how long things take, we need to be patient. No matter how hard people can be, we need to be merciful. And showing mercy when it matters the most in those instances, that's what it means to be strong and courageous. Pushing yourself to take initiative in God's work when it takes sacrifice, setting aside of self, that's being strong and courageous. When I'm in my personal time when no one else can see me, when Eva can't read my thoughts, resisting temptation and choosing the Lord, that's what it means to be strong and courageous. David took this concept of being strong and courageous and he took it further than ever to take it. David constantly sought counsel and community. So 27, again, you have some advisors, counselors that are mentioned there to David. But really, this is David's life. David was always surrounding himself with people. He always invited people in 
sought out good counsel from others. There were hard situations he would in where he would ask for a priest to come so he could inquire of the Lord of what to do in a difficult situation. This involved other people in making hard decisions and resolving difficult problems. I think this contributed very forcefully to the arising of many new leaders in Israel. The greatest leaders I know, like in the church right now, the people I respect the most, the people I seek counsel from, they are people who themselves continue to seek counsel and have sought counsel very diligently. You know, Larry Rouse, who was just here this weekend, that's part of who he is as a person. I trust Larry a lot. Larry has sought counsel himself. On many occasions, I've sought counsel from him. Great leaders are people who most diligently seek counsel. They ask for help. They ask for advice. They invite other people in. This isn't just something we do with older brethren. If I'm facing a problem in my life or seeing some area of growth, it is very good to invite other people into that struggle, to pray for me, to help me, to give me advice even. And we need to develop relationships that are spiritually encouraging, not just not just for the purpose of social camaraderie. You know, think about David and Jonathan, David and some of these other men in his lifetime. You know, Jonathan was a good friend to David, and I'm sure they laughed and just had some social camaraderie. But really, that was in the context of fulfilling the bigger context of serious spiritual need. Again, the people that I respect the most, who I seek the most counsel from, they surround themselves with godly people, not just for the sake of being surrounded with godly people, but as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens the countenance of his friend. The people I respect the most, they surround themselves with people that they're trying to encourage in the Lord and that they are seeking encouragement from him. People they have hard conversations with. People that they exhort, even strongly at times. And that was David with his friends. You know, did David need correction from his friends at times? Do you remember who it was when David committed adultery with Bathsheba? He's trying to cover that up. Remember who it was that rebuked him? Nathan. Did you know that Nathan was one of David's closest friends? He actually came with his son's name after David corrected him his friend anyway. You know, David would even allow correction from his friends, right? David surrounded himself with people who could help him grow. David maintained his mission despite opposition. Again, I think this inspired people. This is kind of more getting back to the time of Saul. Did you know that when Saul was king, he wasn't fulfilling his mission? You know, the king of Israel primarily in David's time, they needed to be fighting the Lord's battles against the Lord's enemies. Saul gave up on that, and he started pursuing David, who was not the Lord's enemy. You know what David did when Saul was pursuing him and trying to kill him? David was killing David. Oh, that sounds like really rude. But David was fulfilling the Lord's mission for him as a king. Even when he was being opposed by Saul, David never lost sight of his mission, even when he was directly opposed. And David was willing to do what was needed without resenting the people who should and could help, but they didn't. That goes beyond Saul. You know, there were a lot of people in Israel in David's time who knew that he was going to be the next king. And they refused to help him. Did you know that there were cities like, uh, well, not something you seem about to say. There was a city where David sought refuge, though. And Saul was coming to that city. And David asked the Lord, are they going to abandon me, betray me to Saul? And God said, there were people in Israel who David would help them, and they were going to give him up to his enemy. Did you know that David never resented those people? He never resented Saul. 
Now when Saul died, he said, How mighty a father. Somehow, it's really difficult to understand how. David genuinely loved Saul. And David genuinely respected Saul. It can be a struggle sometimes. For all of us. You know, we do something and we do it out of a feeling of obligation. Well, nobody else is doing it. You get frustrated, I, I guess I'm going to have to sign up again. You know, I wish so-and-so would sign up for this. I wish so-and-so would teach a lesson. I, you know, and you can get into this, as Larry pointed out in his gospel meetings, this subtle bitterness of others. That's just not righteous. That's not leadership. Leadership, godly leadership, that is influential for good, can do what's needed without getting lost in resenting others who you feel like can and should get more involved in the process. Good leadership will take initiative, even if you see a problem, you trust that God will work with my influence. I'm just going to do what's needed. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. I get to get your hands on David maintained his mission despite opposition. He did what was needed without harboring resentment. If we will do that, like Jesus did, Jesus maintained his mission despite opposition. Also, Paul maintained his mission throughout opposition. Jesus and the Apostle Paul and the Apostles. They just did what was needed without resenting other Christians who weren't doing it or who were opposing it. And similarly, David embraced exhausting responsibilities with zeal, joy, and excitement. You know, David in the life of Saul, again, you know, he was a commander of peoples, and then more people would come to him, and more people would come to him, and he just ended up having this huge army at his disposal while Saul was still king. David had exhausting responsibilities. And a lot of this was things he didn't ask for necessarily. I mean, God appointed him as king and didn't ask for Saul to pursue him and try to kill him. But you know, at every moment, you never read about David complaining. And what you read in the Psalms is David rejoicing, focusing on the will of the Lord, and doing everything with integrity. And that came because of his devotion to the Lord. It's so easy with responsibility being given to us. You know, again, the assembly. It's going to be in October. So I'm not, I'm not saying this, saying anyone's thinking this way, right? But just as an example, you think as we're, you have to teach a Bible class or a sermon while Eve and I are, are away in October. Complain about how exhausting it is and just how frustrating it is. You don't have time for other things. You know, or those interruptions could have an attitude of zeal to one and the work of integrity. It's such a little thing. I really think the attitude David had, the attitude that his men saw him have, the attitude the disciples saw Jesus have, the attitude Christians would see the Apostle Paul have, how they would have exhausting responsibilities. They would turn and say, I'm joyful. And everything's great. God's being so good. All in silence. Finally, we're going to look at a couple passages here in the lesson. David's greatest joy was sacrificing. I think this goes back to the first point of how fun the next is. You know, the Philippian letter written to the Philippian Christians. It's the only letter that mentions at the beginning that they had elders and deacons. It seems like there's a leadership, maybe a theme in that. Philippians talks about rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Again and again, this theme of joy. 
Look at David's attitude. 22, verse 14. It's first Chronicles. David mentions how, Behold, with great pains I have prepared for the house of the Lord. A hundred thousand talents of gold, a million talents of silver, bronze and iron beyond weights, for they are great in quantity. You know, David took great pains to make these preparations. Well, now look at chapter 29. Starting in verse 2, as he's giving one of his final addresses to the nation, and picks up on the same idea. Now, with all my ability, I have provided for the house of my God. The gold for the things of gold, and the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and wood for the things of wood, onyx stones and inlaid stones, stones of antimony and stones of various colors, and all kinds of precious stones, and alabaster and abundance. Moreover, in my delights in the house of my God, the treasure I have, of, I have of gold and silver, I give to the house of my God, over and above all that I have already prepared and provided for the holy temple. Namely, three thousand talents of gold, of gold of over, and seven thousand talents of refined silver to overlaying the walls of the buildings. Of gold for the things of gold, and of silver for the things of silver, that is, for all the work to be done by the craftsmen. Who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? Mind you, David was not demanding or dominating. Verse 6. The rulers of the father's household, the princes of the tribes of Israel, Commanders of thousands and of hundreds, with the overseers of the king's work, offered and joined. And for the service of the house of God, they gave five thousand talents and ten thousand barracks of gold, and ten thousand talents of silver, and eighteen thousand talents of brass, and one hundred thousand talents of iron. Whoever possessed precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord, the care of Jahiel, the Gershonite, and the people of Jesus. They had offered so willingly, but they made their offering to the Lord with the also. There is the climax This moment, this rare moment, all is Israel. last long. Our greatest joy is sacrificing the world. This church will thrive in its nation. will thrive in Rome. What I'd like to do is, as usual, say a prayer for these things, and that if there are any needs that anyone needs to bring forward, you may bring those forward as we